This is Cleantech Talk, Cleantechnica's podcast series interviewing cleantech leaders from around the world. This episode is being sponsored by Pono Home. Hello, cleantech enthusiasts. My name is Scott Cooney, and my company has done energy and water efficiency retrofits for more than 13,000 homes and small businesses, saving our customers more than $3 million a year on their electric and water bills, while also reducing more than 11 million pounds of carbon pollution per year. Would you like to start offering this type of service in your community and do it for a living, make money? You can. Check out homeefficiency.com for more info. We do flat fee consulting to help you get started with our model training you, giving the inventory, tools, software, and support you'll need. No royalties, no hidden fees, no sneaky add-ons. You can just get started. Ready to work with your hands and make a difference every day? Do it. Go to homeefficiency.com. In this special episode, Mike Bernard, Chief Strategist of TFIE Strategy Incorporated and regular Clean Technical contributor, takes over as host of Clean Tech Talk. His guest is Mark Z. Jacobson, who is, among many titles and accolades, a professor at Stanford University and co-founder of the Solutions Project. Mark, it's so good to finally speak with you. Um, yeah. We've been exchanging emails for, it feels like, years. I've been reading your studies and paying attention to your, your role, your you know, top 100 global influencer on climate and your most recent study has been fascinating. Obviously, I dug into it. I published a three-part series on Clean Technica, going through three various parts of it. You know, and I'd love to chat chat with you today about uh, the reactions you've been seeing to the most recent study versus the previous study. You know, kind of your retrospective over the 2010s as we enter 2020. And then, if we have time, I'd really love to d- dug into the couple of minor points where we've actually found places where I don't fully agree with you. Um, to explore those. Does that make sense to you? Yes, um, Mike, it's great to talk with you as well. And yeah, I'm happy to talk about all of these topics. So, um, you know, the, the 143 uh, countries study that came out late last year, um, you know, covers 99.7% of CO2 from fossil fuel use for electrical generation globally. You know, that's four more countries in the previous study. And you cover a lot of ground that you hadn't covered before. Would you like to kind of talk to the three or four major variances beyond the four additional countries in the study? Because I noticed a few, and I think they're very informative and instructive. Sure. Well, just for those who are not familiar with this research, um, we developed energy roadmaps for 143 countries of the world that represent more than 99.7% of all anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions. And the idea behind all these plans is to well, the first, first the why we're doing it is because we're trying to address global warming, air pollution, and energy security simultaneously. Uh, air pollution kills about 7 million people each year worldwide. Global warming is a, already, we can see the impacts, uh, but is a rising and potentially catastrophic uh, problem that's facing the world. And energy security is also a looming problem because fossil fuels are limited resources and will run out over time. So our idea is to attack this problem uh, from the start by trying to transition countries to entirely uh, clean renewable energy. And to do that, we need to electrify everything. And there's some also direct heat, but uh, and provide that electricity and heat with just wind and water and solar power. So that's onshore and offshore wind, solar photovoltaics on rooftops and in power plants, 
concentrated solar, uh, solar heat, uh, geothermal electricity and heat, uh, hydroelectric, uh, mostly existing hydroelectric, some run of the river, mostly conventional, and uh, also small amounts of tidal wave. And we'll also need storage, uh, electricity storage, heat storage, cold storage, hydrogen storage, and transmission distribution. And so in our plans, we've, these plans we've developed are for all energy sectors. So that's electricity, transportation, building, heating and cooling, industry, agriculture, forestry, fishing, the military. Uh, the idea is, again, to electrify all these sectors and provide the electricity with clean renewable energy. And so, for example, uh, for transportation, we would use uh, battery electric vehicles and some hydrogen fuel cell for long distance heavy transport like trains long distance trains, long distance ships, long distance aircraft, and some long distance trucks. Uh, and for industry, we'd use like electric uh, resistance furnaces, uh, arc furnaces, uh, induction furnaces, et cetera. These are all existing technologies. And, and for uh, building heating and cooling, primarily heat pumps uh, for both air conditioning and heating for air and water. And also there's some district heating, which the heat there would be provided also mostly by heat pumps uh, and also some direct solar and geothermal heat. And so we're really trying to tackle everything. Now, energy doesn't, uh, is not 100% of all emissions. Uh, in terms of air pollution, it's about 95%. In terms of uh, climate greenhouse gases, it's about uh, 70 to 80%. And so we'd also need to tackle non-energy emissions such as halogens and uh, methane and nitrous oxide that are from leaks or methane from leaks from landfills, for example, in cattle, and nitrous oxide from fertilizers and also biomass burning emissions. But uh, the plans, so we developed these plans for 143 countries and we not only developed plans to meet the annual average projected energy load in, in uh, 2050, but also did grid stability studies by breaking up these 143 countries into 24 world regions and then trying to match power demand with supply and storage uh, every 30 seconds for three years in each of these regions. And uh, the, so to get to 2050, and this is, you know, this, we did a previous study for 139 countries. And so I'll get to the differences in a sec, but the idea we start with energy, the reason we have just 139 or 143 countries is because we get our raw energy data from the International Energy Agency, IEA. And they have data only for those countries. They don't have data for the remaining countries that are complete. And so we took the raw data for energy data for each sector and each fuel type today. We projected it forward to 2050 uh, using in what's it's a type of business as usual scenario, which is really uh, a scenario that has moderate economic growth and uh, some energy efficiency improvements and accounts for population growth, and it also accounts for some energy efficiency. But then we electrified everything in 2050 in each energy sector for each fuel type. And we found by electrifying, you actually reduce power demand quite a bit uh, uh, in 2050 because of five major reasons. Uh, one is that electric vehicles for example, are much more efficient than internal combustion engine vehicles. And so in fact, you base, because you know, an internal combustion engine vehicle, about 17 to 20% of the energy in the gas and gasoline goes to um, move a car and the rest is waste heat. Whereas in an electric car, you have 
uh, on the order of 80 to 86 percent of the electricity going to move the car and the rest is waste heat. And so you use much less energy, but average over all energy sectors, there's about a 22% reduction of, of energy requirements worldwide uh, when you electrify vehicles and also with some of them as hydrogen, where the hydrogen is produced from electricity. And then in heating, cooling, you get another 13% reduction of power demand worldwide because of heat pumps. Heat pumps are also much more efficient than gas heaters or electric resistance heaters. So heat pumps will um, for example, they, they use one-fourth the energy as a gas heater because they don't create heaters. They actually just move heat from outside of a house to inside or from the ground to a house. And so they use much less energy. And so worldwide, we save another 13% uh, of energy by transitioning to heat pumps. Uh, and then we save about 3 to 4% of energy uh, by electrifying industry uh, just because of the slight improvements of efficiency of volt of electric furnaces versus like say gas furnaces. And then we get another 12, uh, 11, sorry, 12% reduction of power demand due to the fact that we no longer need to mine, transport or refine fossil fuels or uranium in the system uh, because the wind comes right to the turbine, solar comes right to the panel. And so 12% of all energy worldwide right now is just is used just to mine, transport and refine fossil fuels and uranium. And then we get another six to 7% energy uh, reduction due to end use energy efficiency improvements beyond that business as usual case I didn't mention. So overall, by electrifying everything, uh, we reduce power demand by about 57%. Now this becomes relevant because it means that even if the cost per unit energy is the same in a fossil fuel system versus a wind, water, solar system, the actual cost to consumers is at least 57% lower because they're using 57% less energy. And this is significant. So we quantified this uh, and we tried to do this a little bit in the previous study, uh, but we didn't have all these reductions, first of all. And uh, we looked at cost metrics in the study in a little more detail. So we found that, um, we found that in 2050, for example, worldwide, uh, not only do you get a 57% reduction of power demand, but you get about a 60% reduction of annual cost to consumers, uh, energy cost to consumers, that is, because of mostly because of that power demand reduction, but also you get another 10% reduction of the cost per unit energy. So, so anyway, in this new study, we looked not only at a, a few additional countries, but also we developed these cost metrics uh, for not only the energy cost, what we call the aggregate energy cost per year, but also the social costs. Uh, we looked at the health costs and climate costs. And so when you, the energy plus health plus climate costs are called social costs. And we find a 91% reduction of social costs worldwide uh, due to transition to wind, water, solar. And the International Monetary Fund is strongly aligned with that. Their uh, study released last year of uh, the negative externalities um, related to climate change and pollution showed 649 billion uh, annual costs from the United States alone, as one example. And that's directly supportive of your team's thesis. Yeah, um, there's definitely, there are a lot of organizations and, and research groups that have looked at external costs, which are primarily in this case, uh, climate and health costs. And 
I mean, they're huge because worldwide, 7 million people die from air pollution each year. It's the second leading cause of death and hundreds of millions more are ill. So if you look at it in a, on a, what's called a statistical cost of life basis, that's on the order of close to $30 trillion per year. And yeah, I, yeah. I look at the World Health Organization numbers quite regularly. They uh, point to uh, air pollution as the number one leading cause of death. And I think they indicate that it's a five years uh, annual life expectancy reduction in Northern China alone. And once calculated, that was, um, I think it was 2.75 billion years reduction in life expectancy for that yeah, half of the country. Definitely makes sense. I mean, it's like, it's a, you know, the air pollution in China, I mean, I think the aggregate number of people who die is on the order of 1.2 million people in China alone die from air pollution. It's like a lot of those cities, big cities there, it's like smoking two to three packs of cigarettes every day. Even well, actually, interestingly, over the past decade, they've substantially improved that. They've had the massive uh, reforestation program. They've had uh, electrification. They had, uh, what was it, a thousand electric trucks and buses in downtown Beijing in 2011. Now with the 430,000 electric buses on the roads in China, and you know 50% EV uh, acquisitions in China, air pollution in major Chinese cities has improved dramatically. It's uh, you know India is now the major outlier globally in terms of urban air pollution, but China is catching up to North America and Europe uh, remarkably rapidly. Uh, yeah, that would that would be great. Um, if if that's I, I believe there's. Yeah, there's been a significant improvement uh, in, but there's also growth that's accompanying. So, you know, what's happened, like even in the U.S., is air quality peaks have gone down, but the spread of bad air quality has increased. So, like the United States used to be in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, even through the early 70s, with the worst air pollution in the world. And through Clean Air Act Amendment regulations, uh, the peaks have gone down significantly, number of deaths have decreased. However, there's also been a lull because there's now a spread of the pollution to larger, to areas where it didn't used to exist because of the urban sprawl. And so there are just more sources of pollution, even though each source is more efficient. So mm-hmm. peaks have gone down, but there's actually more spread. So in the United States, you still have, for example, today about 70,000 people who die from air pollution each year. Yeah, it's unfortunately got also air quality has decreased over the past two years in the United States. Um, Yeah, well, that's true in many cities, especially uh, places where the regulations haven't been good. But even in Los Angeles, where regulations are usually pretty strong, uh, there has been uh, just because of the growth of Feel sometimes when the economy goes well for a while, just people pollute more, emit more because they're using, they're just using more energy, and uh, the, and also you do get variations in the weather that cause seasonal uh, yearly variations. We've um, also had the wildfire problem as well for the past exactly. two or three years. Yeah, that's the and then climate changes on top of that is now enhancing wildfires and yeah, and definitely in California, for example, that had a huge impact. Yeah, one of the things that I, I that I think is worth touching on here is your reference to United States cities being the most polluted in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. Uh, certainly, something I reference regularly is our 
a historical perspective of Asian air pollution versus you know developed Western economies who in the 50s and 60s had killer smogs and killer fogs in London and New York that were devastating and as bad as anything seen in the worst of China. Um, it's a period of time that industrializing economies go through and China's just behind us and India is just behind us, not different than us. Uh, correct. Yeah. In the, in the United States and uh, in London as well, where London is in particular, they've had many smog events from the 18 hundreds to through the 1950s, even I think the last ones were in the 1960s, what were called London type smog events. And there's two major types of smog. There's the London type smog, which is basically where you have these raw emissions uh, from coal fires, power plants, or steel plant, steel mills, uh, which is basically base, raw emissions to get trapped uh, near the surface. And in the case of London, trapped inside of a fog as well. Uh, or in the other type of smog event is what's called a photochemical smog, which is more like Los Angeles smog, which is more um, where you have emissions of like oxides of nitrogen and organic gases uh, cooked up in the presence of ultraviolet radiation to produce ozone and these what are called secondary pollutants. And so those are two distinct different types of smog and you can get both in the same place. So, uh, but it, worldwide in the 19... Uh, early 1900s through the 1960s, it was, yeah, the United States, New York, Pen, uh, in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, it was really bad, Los Angeles, California, uh, but and also in London and England, where you know, the pollution was really horrible. But you also got places like Meuse Valley, Belgium, where there was a, a horrendous smog event that killed many people. And this is one of the things that I think is, um, you know, very interesting and resonant with, with the study that you... Uh, and your team have been doing <clears throat> and improving over the past few years, is that, um, you know, uh, I look at some of the detractors of electric vehicles, and they, they focus in on just the CO2 savings and say that EV subsidies are, you know, a very expensive way to save CO2. But conversely, if you look at the reduction in pollutants in cities from electric vehicles, you see that both are valuable. It's a, a, a two budget item element. Um, you know, and, and it, you know, t pulling that thread further, there's the energy security thing that you mentioned. Now, when people talk about energy security, what I find is they, they think two or three things. Um, it turns into a very regional or national discussion very rapidly. And it turns into an isolationist discussion very rapidly in my experience. Um, do you find that as well, that um, you know, when you talk energy security, you know, a United States will say, well, we have to make all of our own energy internally to the United States. Uh, do you talk, you know, when you talk to other countries, like Ontario is like that, and British Columbia are like that. They're very focused on being, having energy security in terms of what they can generate inside their borders, which I think is an archaic uh, um, uh, regulatory perspective. What's your experience with that? Um, I find that there are certain groups of people who would not necessarily be in favor of renewable energy that uh, they resonate with the idea that renewables are good because of it provides, it allows people to be energy independent. And so in fact, I've looked at a public opinion polls where one reason that more people believe in 100% renewable energy 
than believe in climate change is because of the potential for energy security that renewables uh, can provide. And, but it's, and it's actually true though that you do get, there are many types of energy security. I mean, there's energy security where, uh, you know, a country or a region can be energy independent or even a, a city or a town or, or uh, you know, like even one community, like a remote community can be energy independent. Like there are remote communities, for example, in Alaska that have to, you know, that rely on imports of really expensive fossil fuels and even their food gets imported by airplane. And so it's really expensive. Whereas if they could actually have their own energy, produce their own energy renewably, like from you know wind in their backyards and uh, some some solar even and some hydro local hydro, and then grow their own food using the energy from indoor with indoor uh, containers and to produce their own ultraviolet light and they can also purify their own water with their own energy. Then they could become energy independent. Costs can go down. So there's that's one type of energy independence. The other type is kind of at the national level, not having to rely on quote foreign oil or you know. Energy from outside of a country, where some in some places that's relevant because some countries sometimes blackmail other countries by not uh, providing the energy, uh, you know, the fossil fuel energy that uh, some certain countries need. And so there's another that's another type of larger scale energy insecurity. And a third type is you know trying to keep a grid stable. We've seen in Puerto Rico where they had a hurricane come through and destroy their their national grid, and all these big centralized fossil fuel plants were pretty much useless. So there, but if you have renewables and you break your grid up into smaller microgrids that are actually in this case interconnected with each other, then if one part of the grid goes down, you still have, and also your fossil fuel plants go down. If you instead have distributed renewable energy, uh, then you can keep different sections of the, in that case, the island open for business in terms of energy. Um, so that's a third type of energy uh, security, insecurity. The fourth type is there are certain technologies like nuclear power that create this energy, this insecurity by because of the fact that countries that develop nuclear energy can also increase their potential to develop nuclear weapons. And so there's this risk several countries in the world have secretly developed weapons under the guise of civilian nuclear energy programs. And this has caused an energy insecurity. So by going to renewables, which are mostly distributed, I mean, you have multiple wind turbines, it's hard for, well, let me just say one more type of energy insecurity is the fact that you have centralized power plants. When they go down, the whole grid goes down. So that if they, can, they can go down by accident, they can go down by weather, they can go down by terrorist attack. Well, when you have lots of distributed solar or wind, like every wind turbine is basically a separate energy source. So when you have a wind farm, each individual wind turbine you'd have to destroy if you're a terrorist, uh, rather than one centralized plant to take down a whole wind farm. So it's very difficult. So you create this security by decentralizing quite a bit. Yeah, the, uh, a, a key example of that is the Argerson, um, you know, uh, nuclear, <clears throat> the Argerson wind turbine, plant in Scotland versus the Hunterston nuclear facility in Scotland. And I think it was 2014, there's a major windstorm that came through. Um, it destroyed one of 13 wind turbines in the Ardrisson wind farm. Um, and that got global news of wind turbine burning. 
but it also knocked out the transmission lines to the Hunterston nuclear facility. Mm. Um, and so for 58 hours, an entire nuclear facility was offline and Scotland was freezing in the dark. Yeah, um, that's England. exactly the problem with centralized power plants. Yeah. I mean, now, there's an interesting question about, um, you know, just touching on the security. We have a kind of a very topical thing right now. Um, over the past five days, the price of oil has peaked and then dropped. Um, and so global costs of energy have increased and then gone back down. And you can see in the energy press, everybody's excited that oil prices are going up and depressed when they go down, which is the converse of reality. Because what they're talking about is the United States uh, doing a drone attack on a high-ranking governmental official on a third-party uh, ally soil uh, without informing the third-party ally or other people or even Congress. And then the Iranian response of drone attacks into um, uninhabited portions of American military presence in uh, Baghdad, and you know, then the back down over the past 24 hours. As we talk global energy security, you try to imagine a renewable equivalent story shifting energy prices globally. And we, it's just impossible to imagine one in that, that future world that we're going to yeah. inhabit. Well, there's all sorts of things to unpack there in terms of energy and security. I mean, the first overall problem is, well, why is there a conflict between the U.S. and Iran? Well, one of the reasons is because Iran is basically threatening behind the scenes to develop nuclear weapons under the guise of a civilian, civilian nuclear energy program by enriching uranium to higher degrees. And so you don't need this if we don't have, if we don't, first of all, we don't need in a hundred percent wind, water, solar world, we don't need any nuclear. And this is one of the problems with it is because it creates this energy insecurity. And then the second thing is, is yeah, the, the price fluctuations you just talked about, why are there price fluctuations? Well, it's because these countries, uh, well, the oil, you know, Iran produces a lot of oil and oil, uh, cost prices go up and down depending on conflict. Whereas if more, if countries are more energy independent due to having more renewables in their own country, you get less of this price fluctuation due to international conflict. Uh, now, and this, this ties into the criticisms of the previous study versus this study, which you've um, almost entirely addressed in this new study, as far as I can tell. And, you know, the criticisms we'll bother to talk about as opposed to the specious ones, which were deeply annoying. Um, but they were talking about the um, transmission congestion and the ability of the fungibility of electricity from hydro sources. Um, and you've addressed that in this study with specific modeling. You talked about the 24 energy regions. Do you want to delve into that a little bit more as one of the major variances between the previous study and this one? Um, sure. Well, actually, it was two studies ago that there was a um, question. More, <laughs> Time flies. Yeah. So there was a 2015 study where we looked at the United States trying to keep the grid stable there. And in there, we just did the 48 contiguous U.S. states, uh, merge them together in terms of the transmission system, and then try to match power demand with supply continuously every 30 seconds for, I think it was six years in that case. Um, and just before I go into the details there, the second, the, the next study we did in 2000, that was in 2015, 2017, we did a study for 139 countries where we broke up the world into 20 world regions. 
instead of 24 we have this time. And in that study, we actually looked at matching power demand and supply in these 20 world regions using three different techniques. Well, when the 2015 study, one of the assumptions we made was that we, instead of having batteries for storage, we increased the peak discharge rate of hydropower. And that's, in other words, we uprated the hydropower without changing the annual average flow rate of water into from any reservoir. So we kept the annual amount of hydro constant in every single reservoir worldwide, or not world in the US because that's what we did. And, but we increased the peak discharge rate by basically adding turbines to allow uh, you to increase the discharge rate at some times, but that would mean you'd have to decrease it at other times in, in order to keep an annual average constant. And this was really cool, I thought, and I still think it's really cool. And in fact, the, it's, it's a, a way to, it's because it's a way you can meet peaks in demand uh, without actually providing a new energy source or a new storage source you, because you're using everything that's existing. And it definitely works. The only question is, well, what's the, it's, what's the magnitude that you can increase, you can just keep adding hydropower turbines to? Uh, to to dams. I mean, you, you know, there's a certain cost to it, but we found that uh, the cost, we didn't look at the cost in the initial study, but subsequently did a, looked at the cost and it was just a small portion of the total uh, additional cost. And it's definitely feasible to do. So it's something that's still definitely technically possible to do. It's economically possible. It's only a question of whether you can politically uh, pull that off. Uh, but the idea I thought, and I still think it's a great idea, and it definitely works. But the, um, but because people were criticizing it so much, I saw in the 2017 study we actually looked then at three scenarios: one where we did increase the hydropower peak discharge rate again, and then two others where we did not. And you know, like one of them we just used we used more batteries, uh, and another one we used heat pumps. And it turns out there are just multiple ways. There's not we, nothing was tied to doing it that way. That was just one way that happened to work. Uh, and uh, but there are other ways, and so in the 2017 studies, we looked at um, three different ways to meet power demand with supply and with and storage. And then in this study, uh, we picked one of those three and expanded on that further. Um, one that used heat pumps for most heating and uh, cooling, and also used batteries together. So we also included batteries. Uh, we just used existing hydropower. We did not increase the hydro uh, in terms of thermal energy storage. So uh, in this new study, uh, we've, we assume we have heat pumps. Uh, there's some district heating. We tried to pick a certain fraction for each uh, country and world region of district heating uh, that, uh, so, we, so that all, that, so there's two ways for buildings to be heated. There's one you can either heat the building on its own with heat pumps inside the building, or you can have district heating where there's a centralized heating location and then you have pipes that go to buildings and provide that water goes to the buildings that's hot water or it could be cold water is also cold water loop to heat or cool a building. Uh, but district heating, with the nice thing about district heating is you can have it associated with underground thermal energy storage. And there are three major types of underground thermal energy storage. There's borehole storage where you store heat and soil underground. There's a water pit storage where you store it in a big, basically a big swimming pool 
that's usually sunken underground a little bit. And the third way is in an aquifer that's already existing deep under the ground. And so when you have district heating, you can associate that with this thermal energy storage. The nice thing about this underground thermal energy storage is you can store heat seasonally. Uh, you can store it and, it and it exists. There are many places at high latitudes that have this in Canada and Northern Europe in particular, where in the summer you collect heat and then you store it underground, either in the porthole or the water pit or the aquifer, and then you use that heat uh, during winter when the snow is on the ground. Yeah, yeah it's, um, it's using thermal masses is uh, an interesting heat storage. Uh, Jim Byrne, who I, um, I know that he's talked with you a few times, uh, engineering professor from University of Lethbridge. Um, he was, um, he and I were working on a project for First Nations um, strategy for uh, a variety of things, but one of the things was a 100,000 square foot uh, agricultural greenhouse renewably powered with an aquaculture um, component to it, which would also be a thermal heat sink. Um, you know, just, it's just an easy hack. And certainly I, I live a kilometer away from Olympic Village in Vancouver, which uses heat pumps to reclaim the waste heat from uh, gray water coming down from all the units in the complex to provide 75% of the heating requirements for, I think, a half dozen buildings over there. Yeah, there are all sorts of nice techniques for extracting heat from or either waste heat or heat that's being stored. And the same with cold, too. Uh, you can store cold in ice, like uh, uh, Stanford my university in 1998. It uh, had a big ice cube under a building where during the day when electricity prices were low, electricity was used to produce ice. Sorry, during the night when electricity prices were low, electricity was used to produce ice. And then the next day, instead of using air conditioning, which requires electricity uh, to cool buildings in the summer, they would use, they just run water through coils in the ice and or cold water would be sent to buildings and that would be used to cool the buildings. And that's a, it's, it's a, basically a form of electricity storage because instead of using electricity for air conditioning, you're basically, um, you're using electricity the night before when it's much cheaper. And, and you're basically shifting the time of the electricity use to, um, you know, to a different time. And the whole overall cost is like one tenth the cost per unit energy of a battery. And, and this is, one of the key things that people keep talking about is they, they talk about heat and cold and uh, they start arguing about high quality heat, which you and I have talked about. Um, you and I uh, exchanged some emails about the heliogen concentrating solar power uh, advances with machine learning where they're able to achieve temperatures of a thousand degrees Celsius. Uh, but that thousand degrees Celsius would be a hundred meters up in the air, as opposed mm -hmm. to in the center of an industrial plant that needs high quality heat. And you know, you and I agreed that electric arc heaters and other existing high-quality electric technologies were much more sensible as industrial components for that type of quality of heat. But that's a different type of heat. A lower-quality heat, a block of ice or hot water, is a much more manageable component in a system for energy. Yeah, there's there's building heating and cooling, which is. Yeah, low temperature heat and then high temperature heat for industrial processes. And the idea of, let's say, producing high temperature heat in one place and then piping that heat a long distance. I mean, you can pipe it a short distance without losing much heat. But, you know, if you're going to pipe it a long distance, that's, that's going to lose a lot of heat along the way. So it's not so efficient. It's better to transmit electricity to a building 
then produce the heat, the high temperature heat right in the building where it's going to be used, there you'll minimize losses uh, for sure in comparison. Yeah, it's, um, uh, I certainly have been looking at industrial components. I, I alluded to that, that I'd be reaching out to you. And, you know, I, I've looked at, you know, steel, as you've looked at with electric arc mini mills in North America, providing 70% of the steel. Um, I've looked at now concrete and um, assessing some of those things. But I'm also looking at industrial components that displace high heat um, and cold processes like the Solvay process um, for sodium carbonate with, um, you know, uh, very minimal exothermic, endothermic technologies in you know, chemical engineering, which are now available because of proton exchange membranes and things like that. And it's just, it's fundamentally changing the requirement for high quality heat as well. Oh yeah. So it's gonna yeah, be very interesting. Yeah, if you can reduce the demand for high temperature heat, that's even better. Yeah. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, drop us a note. We are looking for more clean tech leaders to highlight on a regular basis as we fund Clean Tech Talk.